Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutha Foundation was founded for this potential cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chata Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. He is Kiowa, a descendant of a co-talker, he carried on his famous grandfather's artistic talents, and he's right here with me in person today. His name is Monroe Sotok, and I've always known him to be a very well-respected man amongst multiple communities in Oklahoma. Monroe, you used to work with my dad at Riverside Indian School, so I can only imagine some of the fun you two must have had in that art room because my dad used to come home with some crazy creations. <laughs> I'm excited to hear about your tribe, your history, your traditions and culture. Thank you so much for joining me. Aho Deonde and Bon That was Kiowa just a little bit. I said, nice to meet you, or I haven't meet, met you, but I'm talking to you. And my grandfather named me, and I, I told my name in Kiowa, which is Gutayo, means white wolf. I said, ready to go. That's great. I actually knew what you said. No, just kidding. I had no idea what you said, except the aho part. So Monroe, today we'll talk about some interesting information about your tribe, the Kiowa, and your family history, your dad, who was a Kiowa co-talker, your relation to one of the Kiowa five, your experience at Riverside Indian School, and more. To my listeners, you do not want to miss today's show. But first, Monroe, let's make sure our guests also know about your Kiowa name. Yes, my grandmother gave her uncle, his name was White Wolf. We didn't have any surnames in English. We just had a name maybe handed down or maybe there was a, some kind of feat that uh, happened, a war party, or and that's how they got their names. So my grandmother, her name was Jenny, when I became 18, uh, she gave me, uh, wanted to give me this name. And we have a, uh, used to be November 11th, we have a Veterans Day celebration, and it's called a Tom Congo, which uh, we're the tribe, we have the 10 most bravest warriors who are a member of this, it's called a Black Legged Society. Hmm. And when they were having that, my grandpa took me up into the arena, 
and he prayed over me and prayed in directions and that's when I received my Kiowa name, Hui Tayo, which means White Wolf. And White Wolf was a great Kiowa leader in the past history. I'll share a little bit more about you, Monroe, for our listeners. Monroe grew up in Oklahoma and graduated from Riverside Indian School in 1971. He obtained his bachelor's degree from Southwestern Oklahoma State. Woohoo, go Bulldogs! I went there my first three years of college. So tell us a little bit more, Monroe, about, you know, I know that you talked about this funny story you had about when you graduated from, from Swasu. Yes, uh, I, I went to Southwestern. It was not too far away from home, and I worked with an organization called Upward Bound, and they helped me. I actually became a counselor and went to school and worked with them through the summers. But when I did my student teaching, which I don't know, we'll talk about later, I did it at Riverside, and that was with Keith Shockner. My dad. <laughs> and, yeah, and uh, so we, we had a good time. And so when it came time for me to graduate in uh, December of 75, uh, before I graduated, I got an interview at a little town called Red Rock, Oklahoma. And the school at that time, was, they were called the Red Rock Rockets. So my friend, we graduated, uh, he got his master's, and we both got called to the same place for a, for a job. Uh, me as an art teacher and him with the industrial arts. So we got our time for our appointment to go and interview and and so it was a couple of weeks away, and, and I wanted to, first job, first time getting out in the world, uh, being this teacher position, I wanted to go in with a good attitude and looking and playing the part. So at that time, I had long hair down, I guess, below my waist. And being the first job interview, my wife and I, we decided to go in and cut my hair. So I went down to the barber shop, and they cut my hair off to look decent as a teacher, right? to make nice a good impression. Trim. So we went that day, we got lost, but we got there. <laughs> and then we had our interview. While I was doing my interview, the superintendent used to be a coach around where we live, Mount View, Oklahoma, and he knew a lot of the Kiowa boys around there. Then we start talking about the school and it's like 65% Native American. I was telling him how I was getting ready and I cut my hair and he looked at me and he said, well, I didn't want you to go that far, but you didn't have to cut your hair. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And so I, know. I regretted it, but at the same time, you know, I, I did it for the cause. Yeah, it, it turned out good. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And you probably grew your hair back. Yeah, right? <laughs> it took me a few years. As I can I, see. I went ahead and grew my hair. And a lot of those kids, the native kids, had long hair. And if I could have, I could have kicked myself, but I... <laughs> I, I survived. And there's a lesson in there somewhere about just being yourself, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, and how Be great yourself. is it, is it too, that like, you know, at one point in the boarding schools, they were cutting off uh, Indian boys' hair. And, and now you had a chance to truly be yourself and have your hair long. <laughs> yeah. That's great. And so you worked there for how many years at the Frontier Public School? I started in uh, January 76. And uh, by the way, I taught seventh grade English. And I was a, what they call a parent counselor who went out and visit homes and hmm. kids that were truant. But we made a lot of friends with the older generation. And my dad told me one time, I said, Dad, I'm going to my job and I, I don't know anybody there. He said, well, son, when you go, you get to know the older people first. 
Hmm. If you get to know them good, then the rest of the family will accept you. And sure enough, that's what happened. So wow. we made a lot of friends and families were really good to my wife and I. And after a while, we had our children and they were accepted also. And was it, didn't your daughter, when she went to another school, she thought that she was related to another yeah. tribe, right? Yeah. Uh, actually, when we moved back, my mother got sick, so we wanted to move back home. So I got a job at Lawton, Oklahoma, at the Eisenhower Junior High, so we could be close. And so we enrolled my oldest daughter in Carnegie Public Schools, and I believe she was in a second grade first day of school, they were introducing themselves, and uh, they said, what is your name? She told them their name. She came from Red Rock, and she said, I see you're Native American. What tribe are you? And she said, I'm Oto, Missouri, and uh, <laughs> she grew up around that Red Rock so much, she just thought she was Oto. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're not Oto. You're uh, Kyle Comanche, so that's so cute yeah, because so, of those, you know, that community that took you in, which is what I do love about yeah. our Native American communities. And yeah, she yeah. Sometimes she... <laughs> the, the families there they would come and pick my daughter up and take her to town and just you know treat her like one of the family, they'd buy her clothes and just took care of her. You know, this so right. yeah, really acceptance and it's great. Actually, next week is the, what they call an Otomazeria encampment. And we plan on going back up there. Nice. Most of the students that I taught, they're, they're grandparents now. So, what? That's yeah. so weird, yeah. right? Okay, so then you received your master's in education from University of Oklahoma in 2006. And eventually you went back to the place where you went to school when you were younger, Riverside Indian School, to teach art. So for our listeners, Riverside Indian School is the oldest native boarding school in the country. And that's, again, where you and my dad met. Congratulations are in order because you recently retired from there, correct? Yes. And uh, because of the pandemic, the kids come from all over the United States, Grand Canyon, up north. Even we had several Eskimo kids from Mm -hmm. Canada. Yeah, they come from all over. So in March, I believe the 23rd, 2020, they released the kids to go home. We had to stay there until May the 25th was our last day. And so when it came time for my retirement, I didn't have any balloons or Darn it. any celebration. They just they didn't even shake my hand. and uh, So that's how I retired. I, instead the worst. Of, instead of Stupid a COVID. Boom. I went out with a <laughs> Like a little fizzle. I, I retired from public school and 2005, and uh, that August, I finished my course of study work and graduated from SMU, and then uh, December, uh, let's see, I think we had to wait till May for the graduation, and so in May of 2007, I received my master's in education, so I graduated twice. Before I got my master's, I, I had a church, I was a minister, so I was a preacher teacher. Yeah. But after I got my master's, I became a master pastor. <laughs> Little joke on the side. Preacher teacher. Anyway. Master pastor. <laughs> okay. So, you, you know, speaking of being a master pastor, uh, you are a pastor at Hunting Horse United Methodist Church in Lawton, Oklahoma. So, for any of my Lawton mm-hmm. listeners, go check out Hunting Horse because this native can preach. 
Anyway, you've been married to Johanna Zatok for 47 years. She's here with us today. It's been wonderful getting to see her. And side note, I love the relationship that you and Johanna have, um, you know, so much respect and admiration between the two of you. And Joanna is Kiowa and Comanche, correct? Yes. She's uh, enrolled Kiowa, but she's Comanche and Kiowa. My grandpa came to me and he said, grandson, whatever you do, marry Kiowa. Really? Uh, so, yeah, that stuck in my head. You know, I have friends uh, other than natives. So when I met Johanna, we both prayed about it. And it was just, it's not a coincidence, but God brought us together. And so my grandpa's gone to his heavenly home now. But I was just saying to myself, I, I fulfill half of this request because Johanna's half Kyle and half Comanche. You halfway did it. That's awesome. Yeah, I'd say it's a full effort though. That's pretty good. Last month, June 20, we celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Yes. Yeah. And we, when we met, we didn't, we dated for five years and then we decided to get married in a reformed church in Lawton, Oklahoma. Oh, that's great. I love that. And, and such a full life, seven grandkids between your two daughters and I think you have another grandkid on the way, yes, right? Yes, in uh, October. And so, you know, we were talking about your being a pastor, a master pastor. And uh, so I'm Choctaw, obviously, but you were talking about some Choctaw in your church uh, recently, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> we were at uh, a church called this Angie Smith United Methodist Church, and there was probably half of the members were Choctaw, and then you had Ponca and Creek Seminole and... Muscogee, I guess that's what they're called now, mm -hmm. and other tribes. And the Wild Onion Dinner is a big fundraiser. So they were getting ready like two or three weeks before. And so one Wednesday evening, we had Wednesday service, and there was, I don't know, 15, 18 people down in the basement of uh, where we eat. And they were down there fixing everything. And so when it came time for church, I began to sing a Kiowa hymn. And they gradually began to come up, and then uh, we were having our devotion and prayer and everything, testimony. And then it came time for me to preach, and so I got up and I began to preach. And I noticed this one guy, actually he's Kiowa, sitting in the middle of the church pew, and he had his head down. And I began to preach, and halfway through my preaching, I looked up, and he was like he was wiping the tear away from his eye. And I said, "Man, this." sermon must be getting to him. So I, I began to preach harder uh, because it yeah. was at least one, you know, that was getting touched. <laughs> so we finished the service and then we shook hands and I went back to him. He was still sitting down. And I said, brother, I patted him on the back. I said, brother, I'm glad that my preaching got to you. God's word touched you. I'll be praying for you. And he looked up at me and said, yeah, it was a good sermon, but I'm not crying for that. I, I was cutting up wild onions, and that's why I'm crying. Oh, man, he burst my bubble. <laughs> well, you know why he was crying, right? He's Kiowa. The Choctaw are used to the wild onions. So I'd like to talk with you more about Riverside. As you know, there's this transition that the Indian boarding schools went through over time. And, and for those who may just be learning about the history of these schools, in the 1870s, the government sought to assimilate future generations of Native Americans by, by educating them and attempting to make them as white as possible. The kids were ripped away from their families. Their hair was cut, which was such a devastation since their hair was considered sacred. 
They were dressed in white folks' clothing, and they were from then on not allowed to speak their language or practice their culture. We could speak for many hours on this topic alone, so I will be covering those atrocities on another episode. Something I do want to mention and is very important for those trying to understand this situation is the fact that there has been a major transition to what we have today, which is boarding schools that are there to empower our indigenous children by helping them to continue to practice their culture in a safe place where they're surrounded by other natives. So tell me a little more about your time as a student at Riverside and then about your time teaching there as well. Let me go back a little bit further. My grandmother went to a mission school, and I believe it was Catholic. She was little, and of course they, you know, cut their hair and put on a certain kind of clothing. And so one time, this matron and my grandma, she she still didn't speak very good English. And this matron got my grandma and another girl, and she took them to the attic of that dormitory. And when she went up to the dormitory, up all the way to the attic, she had a basket of socks. When they got up to the attic, they went in. The matron put the basket in the middle of the floor, and then she told them in English something to do. And, of course, them not understanding fully English. And then the matron left, and her and that little other girl, they were standing in the middle of the room, and looking at each other and didn't know what to do. So they just kind of figured for themselves that in their minds, they said, well, maybe she wants us to start putting them on. And so uh, that's what they did. They sat on the floor and they began to put those socks on one at a time on their feet. And uh, when the matron came back, she seen those uh, all those pairs of socks on their feet that matron make them take the socks off and she scolded them whipping them for not doing the right thing. Mm. So that's just one story, you know, the communication that my grandmother told us. And then another time, my dad, I guess he was like four or five, when the Fort Sill Indian School is closed now, but they took my dad and his sisters, which were a little bit older, he was the youngest, and they took them to Fort Sill. And of course, they did the same thing, cut their hair and gave them the same kind of clothing. And then when it came time, they got their bids and everything. When it came time for the dorms to shut down, my dad was little and he was he didn't know what was going on. When the matrons came back to check on him, she made him get in bed and then she made sure they were all in bed and then she turned the lights out and go on, whatever else she had to do. So when she left, my dad figured out the timing, you know, that she came to check on him. So when she turned the lights out, he waited a little bit and then he would real slowly try to sneak over to his oldest sister, Aww. which she was probably maybe 12 or 13. And he would be whimpering, you know, not crying loud. But my aunt, oldest sister, would get him and put him in bed with her. Uh, at five years old, you can see the traumatic that was going on in his little mind. Mm-hmm. So in the morning, way early before the matron uh, made her way around, my aunt would wake him up, and then she'd make him go back to his own bed. He went to school all the way through high school, and two months before he graduated, World War II happened, and that's when he was shipped out in the Army and served. But he never got his diploma. When he got older and got out of the military and had us as his children, I wonder why he didn't really show us affection. He didn't 
receive that kind of love and affection when he was little because of the boarding schools. Mm -hmm. And uh, until we were men, he finally began to hug us and show that relationship. Right. So I didn't understand for a while, but then I kind of figured it out that since he didn't receive that when he was growing up, how could he show affection to us, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a traumatic. Those are just mental things, you know, that kids went through. And, and they course, were just babies. Yeah, they. I mean, from five years old all the way till he's grown up, spending that all that time in a boarding school. I can't. I can't imagine. Oh no, no way. So sad. Yeah, I can just picture it. And it's such a cute little story about the socks. You know, in a normal oh. situation, people would see those little girls doing that and think it's cute, but yeah. no sense of humor back then, I guess. So, you know, I mentioned that all these stories, like what you're telling me, and it's so fascinating mm-hmm. to know that some of those stories are dying away with time. They're just you know, dust in the wind. And that's another reason why you and I are talking today and why Native Talk Talk exists is to make sure we're recording those. And so I appreciate you sharing those challenging and difficult stories. And so you went to Riverside starting in 1970, right? Yes. And that was a big year, I think, yes. at Riverside. Um, at that time, in 1871, that was the start of Riverside Indian School. And so 1971, my graduation year, that was a 100-year anniversary. Wow. <laughs> so they had, toward the end of school, they had all kind of activities. They had a powwow. They had a 100-mile run, which I participated in. And they had uh, killed a buffalo, and they had a buffalo feast. Yeah, they had all kind of stuff going on this year. 2021, it has been 150 year. So they're planning a virtual and a change. And so I'm not exactly sure what they're wanting to do at this time. So there's a big celebration. 150 years, that's quite a long time for. Yeah. Yeah. Riverside's the oldest boarding school in the whole United States. Wow. So interesting. And, and the idea, too, that it is something to celebrate now. There are survivors of both the genocide that was going on, whether it was physical genocide or wiping out the culture and the language. And now we're surviving the fact that the language and the culture is being kept alive now by these boarding schools. So on the Riverside campus, even today, there are these dorms that they're just, they look like square brick boxes and they're named after each tribe. And which dorm did you stay in? I stayed in Comanche dorm and well, we call them cottages at the time. And they were co-ed. The boys stayed on one side, the girls stayed on the other side. And we had house mothers or matrons that were there 24-7. And down in the basement, they had washers and dryers and, you know, self-sufficient. On the weekends, the cafeteria for the school was closed, but the girls uh, would cook all the meals Mm -hmm. on the weekend for us. And I'll tell you what, some of those girls can really cook. Oh, really? (laughs) What kind of stuff did they make? Was it? Well, they, they made... Uh, what I call Indian food. You know, they make fried, fried bread, <laughs> corn soup. Yum. Of course, breakfast was the same, you know, eggs, bacon. They did the whole works. And uh, yeah, nice. I, I really enjoyed that. When I went to Riverside, I weighed 170. And after <laughs> two months, I weighed 210, I believe. Yeah. All that good fried bread. Yeah. Oh, I love we fried bread. We were taken care of pretty good. I recall a story that you were telling me about how there was assembly one night and you were tired and you were taking a nap and the dorm mother came or the cottage mother or whatever came in and woke you up, right? 
Yeah, it was in toward the end of school. Yeah, it, it was a long day for me, and and so I decided to take a nap. So I went back to my cottage and I laid down. I just laid down, and my dorm parent matron came and she said, "What you doing in here?" I said, "I'm tired. I want to take a nap." She said, "No." You don't need to take a nap. You need to get ready and go to that. They were having an awards assembly for all the athletes and academic and whatever else. And so she said, you, you need to get dressed and go on. There's nobody else here. I said, I don't want to go. I'm tired. She said, get up and get dressed and go. So so I walked in. Everybody was in there. And I sat down probably in the middle, bottom row, still kind of groggy, tired. And so they were handing out awards and man when is this going to be over and then they called a female student of the year and she went out and got her award and everything and then they said well getting ready to select the male student of the year and would you give applause for Monroe Sato <laughs> <laughs> who otherwise uh, would have been still in his bed if the dorm mother didn't come in <laughs> I looked up and said what so I went up and I got the award and yeah, and they gave me a certificate and a like a medal that you wear on your lapel. Yeah. And I still have that. So now they call it Mr. Riverside. So I was Mr. Riverside, 1971. 1971. Yeah. <laughs> you can wear that with pride. <laughs> if anyone bothers you, you can be like, do you yeah. know who I am? Yes. And it sounds like you had some really great influences there at Riverside. There was a Miss, or Mrs. Jones that you had talked about who had a big influence on your life. You want to share more about that? Yes. There was several teachers there that helped me coming to school. And one was Buster Garcomi. I played basketball. I went out for football, but I broke my finger mm-hmm. and hand, so I, I set out. I got well enough to play basketball, and Buster Narcomi was one of those influences, and I began to ask him, you know, about his career, how he came to work at Riverside. He said, well, I'll tell you what, this is what you need to do. Teach in public schools, and then when you get, it's time to retire, retire, and then, then when you get through there, come work at this government school. Mm-hmm. I said, why is that? He said, well, right now when I get ready to retire, I'll have two retirements that I can retire from. I said, man, that sounds like a good deal. Yeah. So I, I, that stuck in my mind. Right. And I basically did the same thing that he did. I believe 34 years and then at Riverside for 12 years. Uh, so that altogether it's like 46 years that yeah. I've been in education. And then Mrs. Jones, she was a counselor, but if it wasn't for her, she helped me fill out applications, apply for scholarships. She was just a tremendous help to me. If it wasn't for her, I don't know if I would have went on to get into Southwestern and start my Thanks to Mrs. Jones. Career. Yeah, Mrs. Jones and, and Upward Bound, they really did help me I get love my that. start. Thank you to all the teachers out there. Yeah, oh, yes. You know, it is different. Riverside Indian School, there's probably... 85% of the teachers, educators, uh, administration are Native American. And wow. that's what they put on their applications, that priority. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's different from way back. These teachers, they, they really care about you. And the school, I, I don't want to say caters, but they take care of the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Absolutely. I was there, we didn't have, we had programs, you know, but not like they do now. There's, there's all kind of opportunities. And while I was there, I guess I would say that we had probably 
eight or nine students that receive the prestigious award. Is it school-wide? Yeah, it's nationwide that wow. you can apply. And one got accepted to Brown University. And uh, one one of my students, art students, got accepted to Chicago School of Art, which is one of the most prestigious schools in the whole United States. Congrats. You know, there's there's opportunities there. I have several students that are in the military. They're doing good. I, I believe that by going to Riverside, they had a upper hand over the other students because they learn how to take care of themselves, yeah. wash their clothes, keep fit, and uh, so... Yeah, they're doing good, and then, then you have others. I, there's several that have come back to Riverside this past year, mm-hmm. applied, and now they're teaching at Riverside. So it's kind of like take a long yeah. round trip back to where it all started. Yeah. Comes full circle. Yes. Well, and, and I loved I you and I were talking you know recently, and you would talk about the games. You know, there were the cheerleaders, and yeah. and uh, what were they called? <laughs> back in that day, uh, well, the boys were called. Riverside Braves and the girls, they were called Riverside Bravettes. Now they're called Lady Braves. Lady Braves. Yeah, it's a correction on the, the name. We had a cheerleading team and played football, basketball, baseball, and they had all of those other things. And then one of the cheers, and I tried to get the teams nowadays to say it, but they won't. Uh, one of <laughs> our cheers was. Hey, hey, Yapta, hey, take them all the other way. Times have changed so much. I I was a a flower girl one year, and I thought I was so special because I got to walk with the cheerleaders there at Riverside. So who did they play in sports? Uh, At that time, I believe that we were 2A. Now they're, I believe they're 4A. Wow. But we played schools like Hinton, Oklahoma, Hobart, Carnegie. Uh, I believe that we played Interdarko. You know, they're a bigger school, but we played them. MacArthur and Lawton, Lawton High. On a side note, did you ever experience the kids getting maybe pushback from some of the white kids in other schools or anything like that? Or do you feel like it was everyone was pretty much accepted? It's the same. People say, man, you got a lot of kids that have been in trouble, have been to jail and runaways and all that. But, you know, it's it's just the same. And I tell in public schools and whoever else ask me, the kids are kids. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have good kids and you're going to have not so good kids. Yeah. You know, and uh, Riverside, it, it's gotten a bad reputation. You know, it's one of the best schools that I, I think that if anyone could go there, I mean, you, they take care of you. If you have any needs, they have all types of programs that you can get involved in counseling. Mm-hmm. You're around uh, native kids, the counselors, the dorm parents, cooks, everybody. They just treat everybody equal. Uh, sometimes the kids kind of make fun, you know, and that. But I don't believe there's too much of uh, getting picked on. Or we tell them if somebody's doing something to you that you don't like, report it. Tell somebody. Don't just try to get through it by yourself. They have a lot of different advantages out mm-hmm. there. And like I said, the adults there, they really care for the kids. They do. They and absolutely the, the do. the school, they take care of the kids. Even the, even the security guard and the groundskeepers there, just great people. Very kind. And when you show up as a guest, too, or I'll see them interacting with the kids. And it's just like a very 
safe, caring environment. And that's why I wanted to ask that question because I was homeschooled, but I would hear that from the public schoolers, oh, the kids at Riverside, you know, they yes. taken in some really rough kids. And, and it's not to say that there weren't some rough kids just like anywhere, but you know, there was all kinds of people there that there were kids that wanted to come there to understand their language and their culture more, or, mm-hmm. or maybe their parents had passed and they were being raised by their grandma and they kind of wanted to be around some you know, a different scenario full time. There's an entirely large mix of people there. So I I hate that misconception that some people had. I don't know if they still do, but back when I was younger, I I heard that sometimes. You know, when you've been around that kind of environment, uh, you can see, you know, not just putting us all into one big bowl and mixing us up. Right. (laughs) But you have what I call urban Indian kids, native kids, which live in the city and never have set foot upon their reservation. You have those kids, students that come from reservations that can talk fluently. They know about tradition. They know about their people. So you have a variety of different environments mm. that all come together as one. And it was really interesting to me because I, I wanted to know about their background, their families, where they come from. And that was exciting to me learning about the other tribes and what oh, total. survival and everything Because there else. were so many tribes there at Riverside, right? Yes. There's over 30-something, I want to say like 37 tribes represented. Wow. So I know a little bit of a story about you, about how you may have been a little bit of a troublemaker during some snowfall there at Riverside. I'm going to tell that story. You want to come clean, mm-hmm. Monroe? This is your chance. Mr. Riverside. <laughs> yes. You know, everybody got along pretty good. Of course, there, we had our differences with the Sure. You know, different tribes and so forth. But this one time, and any of you listening in 1971, <laughs> it started snowing. And it snowed probably three, three, four inches of snow. And uh, so school let out. We went to the dorms and we put our stuff up and then we came back out. And there, in between the cottages, they were in a, like a circle. Mm-hmm. And there was a big space in between. And so everybody went out in that middle area and start having snowball fights. No adults came out. I guess they, they just wanted us to have a little bit of fun. Sun was going down. It's getting dark. Lights were being turned on in the different cottages. And everybody was having a good time just making snowmen and having snowball fights. And, I mean, everywhere that you look, you can see a snowball coming through the air. You know, <laughs> fun. You have to uh, watch out. So... I was kind of close to my cottage, Comanche cottage. I looked over and my cottage sister, two of them, I could see them uh, through the window. They had big windows, six foot by eight foot windows, two or three of them. And uh, I seen her walk by. So I said, I'm going to scare her. So I got me a snowball, packed it down good. And then when I seen her walk by again, I threw that snowball because I was quite a ways away, and I threw it as hard as I could. I threw it, I could see it, and when it hit the window, it broke that window, shattered the window. Shame, shame, (laughs) shame. And I heard screaming, you know, coming from that dorm, and when it happened, it shattered that glass. Everybody stopped, and they just all were out there looking around, saying, what happened? And in about, it seemed like five minutes, but I'm sure it was like, 20 seconds or so. When that happened, everybody knew what was going to happen. Those security were going to come and everything. So everybody 
all at once, everybody just start running in different directions. It was <laughs> including yeah, yourselves. I, I was the first one to start running. I tell you, uh, you and, heard it here, folks. Any Riverside <laughs> alumni listening to this? It was Monroe's Toke, the window breaking bandit. Yeah, I never told anybody I was. Does it feel good to come clean time, now? Yeah, it's like a weight lifting off for me. I know. I if I told my Riverside. Brothers and sisters, they probably beat me up because I've ruined their, their snowball fights and having fun. Yeah, way outside. to go. Way to spoil the Yeah, fun. so everybody had to go in early. Everybody had to go in and get ready for the next day. Oh, my gosh. It's a great story, though. I mean, and I can just picture. Okay, so a little nostalgia here. If you think about how many years ago before that, was it that there were warring tribes, the Kiowa against the Comanche and the Apache and, and so on. And yet now here, there's 30-something different tribes, maybe at any one time there at Riverside, with multiple people from different tribes playing in the snow together. I mean, it's a pretty cool thought, if you've got it that way. Yeah, here in Oklahoma, I don't know if it's the, you know, the way that the mainstream of life, but I know one thing is that uh, separation, and, and I think that's what happened in the day, because they call the eastern side of Oklahoma the civilized tribes. And then they call the south, uh, western side uncivilized. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I don't think it's degrading. I just think that they said that because the western side of Oklahoma, the Cherokee and Choctaw and those tribes, they all had a writing system. They produced their songs and uh, speeches and everything in writing. And as for us on the western side, called the Plains Indians, natives, we didn't have a writing system. We had pictographs, and that's why we handed down our information and word of mouth. But you know what? We still carry on our stories that were told, even though we don't have a writing system, which now they're beginning to pick up on a writing system. Yeah. But back then, they were just handed down from generation to generation, and those stories are still continuing to this day. And that's good, because... If not, those are the things that we're trying to, in the cases where it's not, those are the things we're trying to record here. And uh, By the way, uh, my sister was married to a Choctaw. His okay. last name is Willis. Ah. So there's 100,000 Willises here and in Mississippi. So Be honest, do you, do you pick on him? Because he's Choctaw. No, he's older than me. So. Oh, got to respect your elders. But, but then you have those, uh, those students that were from Mississippi mainly around Philadelphia. I said, how do you get along with the Oklahoma Choctaws? He said, well, to tell you the truth, this was a Philadelphia Choctaw. He said, we're the real Choctaws. <laughs> so I said, okay, all right. I know, they just step on us, don't they? For the, our listeners, so Choctaw primarily came from Mississippi and some Louisiana and Arkansas, and, and they came over on the Trail of Tears during the removal to now what is present-day Oklahoma Indian Territory at the time. And uh, so there's this kind of rivalry between the, a friendly rivalry between the Mississippi Choctaw, those who stayed back, there weren't a ton of them, but then, um, and the ones that came over to Oklahoma and then settled here since the 1830s-ish. And so, yeah, there's this little bit of a rivalry. But I, I will say this, that they, Mississippi Choctaws, they, they didn't know what wild onion dinner was. Really? And they didn't know what Pashofa is. Well, they're missing out. Banaha. They might have a, had another name for it, which somebody said, yeah, they didn't know what I was. I had to explain it to them. 
Oh, see, yeah. see, <laughs> what do they know? And as you know, I made banaha the other day. Yeah. I always saw it was really yeah. good. But I will say, I have to give the Mississippi Choctaw credit because they are better at stickball. I, I'm sorry to my oh, Oklahoma yeah. Choctaw friends. You guys are amazing. But the Mississippi Choctaw just, they've got their stickball down, you know? Anyway, all this stuff is great stuff for us to hear, to hear, you know, so many good times at Riverside these days and to know that what was meant for evil back in the day with many of these boarding schools is now meant for good and to keep Native history and culture and tradition and art alive. At the same time, we must, of course, honor and remember the children who suffered so many atrocities from physical, mental, verbal and sexual abuse and a full on attempt of cultural genocide. Hello, my Native Chalk Talk listeners. Don't go away. There's much more to my conversation with Monroe, so please stay tuned for part two of Monroe Satok, descendant of Hunting Horse, a co-talker in the Kiowa Five. Are you looking for a new adventure? Learn to fly at Chickasha Wings. Right here at Chickasha Wings, we teach people to fly. We've got 11 airplanes, nine flight instructors, and about five mechanics. We turn out about 80 new certificates or ratings each year. And we train pilots who now fly at the major airlines. We have, they fly for the Air Force, the FAA, for private jets. They even have a few missionary pilots. Our customers come from all over the United States. Here at Chickasha, we're able to provide lower costs, a more focused training program, and we're able to provide a higher level of customer service. My favorite thing about this business is helping people. Because I see people go from not knowing anything about it to being an airline pilot. Come out here and learn to fly. Your adventure awaits at Chickasha Wings. For more information, check out chickashawings.com. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.